Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we're going to focus on what's going on with British politics. There's a lot of discussion at the moment about whether the economy is going to snap back. But there's another question. Is politics going to snap back or has something fundamentally changed? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me slash talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me slash talk. Joining me to talk about this, we have Helen Thompson. Hi, Helen. Hi, David. And also, it's a pleasure to welcome Tom McTague, who is a writer for The Atlantic and has been writing some of the best journalism, not just about this crisis, but about the crisis that has been British politics for the last few years. It's one crisis after another. And Tom, maybe if we could start with your perspective on, I mean, there are lots of ways to frame the really big question here, but I'm just going to have one go at it. Question about what's going to stick and what really has changed. The government's taken on both extraordinary new powers and extraordinary new responsibilities, and they kind of go together. So the government has shut down businesses, and it's also taken on responsibility for keeping those businesses afloat. It's told us that we have to stay in our homes, and it's policing that up to a point, and it's also allowing people not to pay rent and so on. So we've got new powers and new responsibilities, and there's a feeling that these things will have to fade away, and things will have to go back, at least in part to where they were before. For now, they're in tandem, but presumably there must be a chance that these things are not going to remain in tandem, and at least a possibility that the government holds on to the powers when it gives back the responsibilities. Do you think that's maybe where we're heading, that these things are going to come apart? Yeah, I'm definitely in the camp that this is change things forever and change politics forever. When I reflect on it, some of the things that jump out at me are quite extraordinary when you just strip away all the layers above them and you get back to the sort of the real basics underneath you know we've had the state reveal itself as not only the lender of last resort as we found out it was in 2008 but the employer of last resort almost the purchaser of last resort the thing that keeps money in all of our pockets and ultimately what does that mean i think that means that basically it is the thing that provides us with our security And we get back to something you've talked about, which is, you know, the security for freedom balance that we give away our individual freedom in return for some form of protection. And we demand the state protects us. And I think that's the other thing. This is the nation state. It struck me that this feels very much a British story for us here. And it's a French story for those in France and a German story and an American story. Every nation is doing what it can every government of every nation is in charge of this crisis and yet it is also a global crisis it feels different to 2008 so i think those things have come to the fore that sort of 
the role of the state and the role of the nation state. And ultimately, as well, I think, the fact that some of these states have just been unable to do the job that we expect of them to keep us safe. You know, it's effectively a failure in in many ways, I think, that we're all locked in our homes. Not every state in the world has had to get to this point. So South Korea has a more effective state that has managed this crisis in a way that has protected individual freedom to go about and do your daily business. But it's done that by effectively surveilling you more and taking away some of the liberties or the privacy that we've come to take for granted. So I think we're going to have to face all of these questions after this crisis is over about what is this new balance that we want to strike. Helen, you talked about this before and what Tom just said there. In some ways, this crisis has revealed something rather than adding something to the states that we have making them different from what they were before, it strips something away. And if you do describe it in terms of security, both the powers and the responsibilities are there in the name of security, the responsibilities for economic security, the powers for a more basic kind of physical security. Is it possible that having stripped away something that overlaid that so that we can see it for what it is, the veil will come back? If we haven't changed in the sense that we always lived with this kind of politics, we just didn't quite see it. Can the veil come back? I think you have to separate those two issues out, as you did in the way that you first asked the question to Tom. One of them is about what the state does through its claim to legitimate authority and having, in the end, the coercive power to take authoritative decisions with the aim of protecting its citizens. That is the state that actually has always been there and that we're seeing a graphic demonstration of we're seeing what was always true on the other hand it wasn't always true that the state was acting as the financer of employment of last resort by guaranteeing the ability of employers to pay the lion's shares at least of their wages if that proves necessary now i think this is where we can say that actually we are going to move forward into something that is rather different in political terms because I'm not sure that the state is easily going to be able to retreat from that kind of economic responsibility. It's going to be deeply complicated by the fact the state isn't, in an economic sense, acting as a guarantor for everybody in anything like the same way. And you can see that in the British case, in the difference between what was offered to people who are in secure employment, those who have not got secure employment, including those who have recently taken up new jobs, and then the position in regard to small businesses. So there will be, I think, a very contested politics around who the state acted to protect economically during this crisis. To some extent, there might be a distributional question about who the state acted to protect in a health sense as well. But I think the economic one is pretty much inevitable at the same time as it isn't going to be so easy, I think, to say, okay, well, this was an economic emergency, so the state had to do these things. Now we're going back to the state never thinking about doing these things unless the same health emergency arises. I think that will be quite difficult. I think we have shifted the economic terrain in which politics is now going to occur. 
And if this is a British crisis, it's a global crisis, everyone is experiencing it in some form. But Tom, as you say, each nation state is experiencing it differently. And for now, the focus is on different outcomes of certain kinds of health policies and interventions, and then the different scale of the kind of economic support that's been offered. So the United States at the moment seems like the model of a state which in some of its branches is doing a good job of providing certain forms of economic support, Federal Reserve and bits of Congress, and in other of its branches is doing a terrible job of managing the health crisis. But in the case of America, that has to be filtered through partisanship and division and all the politics that existed before. And in the British case, as I said, when I introduced you, you've been writing about different kinds of crisis in British politics, Brexit and others, Corbyn's leadership. That hasn't gone away either. It's on the back burner for now. But we still have a two-party system. We still have the Labour Party trying to re-establish itself. It has a new leader in Keir Starmer. And yet there's a feeling for me that it's, it's really scrambled the divisions between the parties. I mean, it's starting to really make it hard to see where those dividing lines that were much clearer three months ago are. I mean, just to take one obvious example, the Tory party is now the party of the NHS, partly simply because of what's happened to its leader. Does that feel right to you that that's getting scrambled too, that there isn't a kind of going back to what we thought were the dividing lines in British politics even two, three months ago? I think that will inevitably be the case, although I think it could work the other way as well in that the dividing lines that we have, they act as a kind of gravitational force that force each of the two parties to represent the interests of the people that they already represent largely. And there is some kind of line there in that the Labour Party is representing urban centres and younger people. And they are going to be experiencing this crisis in a particular way that is different to the conservative base, which is older and more rural. So, for example, you know, if we're talking about the economics and how the government has acted to secure people's incomes, as we've talked about, they've done that in a way that doesn't help everybody equally. And if you're on insecure work or low paid work, in a city, you're going to be experiencing this in a very acute manner, I think, you know, you're going to be scared, and you're going to be potentially locked in insecure accommodation at the same time without access to outdoor space. And if you're in London, you know, you're going to be feeling this right now, you know, that this is the crisis that it is. Whereas if you're in parts of the the old red wall that fell to Boris Johnson at the last election, you're more likely to have a home that you own, you're more likely to be older, less likely to be seeing this crisis right now, you perhaps are on guaranteed state income already, because you've got a pension and all of those things that are protected with triple locks. So I can imagine you have a situation where the Labour Party start to put pressure on to end the lockdown, but in a sort of rolling way that starts with younger people and schools, and those kind of things, they're just naturally representing their base. And the Conservative Party perhaps will react in a slightly different way. Although saying all that, as you mentioned, the thing that strikes me, if that was to be a future dividing line is you have businesses, where do they fall on that spectrum? You know, they would have previously fell with the Conservative Party, but probably not in that divide. So yeah, I think it has the power 
to sort of reinforce some lines and and uh, create new divisions as well. Because the way you framed it there, to me, it also sounds like it's scrambling the idea that each party represents in this crisis a certain kind of coalition or constituency in a particular way. So rural, you're less likely to be immediately affected by the health threat. But elderly, you're more likely to be affected by the health threat or young and urban, those pull in two different directions. So you live in London, London is currently the epicenter of the virus, but young, it's less likely to kill you. Or to put it another way, and in the United States, polling suggests that Republicans and Democrats really divide on the question of reopening the economy. Republicans are much keener on it, but also Republicans are in areas less affected by the health threat. Democrats want to remain locked down. Here, from what we can tell from polling, it's still pretty bipartisan. I mean, there's a consensus that most people are in favour of what the government is doing. But just looked at it in political terms, one would expect certain kinds of Conservative voters and politicians to be more in favour of opening things up quicker and Labour voters or politicians to naturally gravitate towards more of the government control and intervention. And yet, the Conservative Party is partly doing this because this is a crisis for old people, a health crisis, and young people are having to pay the price. So again, you could say Labour politicians are pulled in two directions here. If you're representing the young, you want to open up this economy as quickly as you can. But if you're representing the young, you speak for a kind of political outlook, which is much more in favour of government controls. When I look at it, it looks more scrambling than it does clarifying and dividing. I think it's also, though, complicated because it isn't clearly just a case of generational conflict. And there is, it's not a big generation, but still a generation in the middle, Generation X, indeed our own generation, that actually has been quite politically significant in British politics because it's the one where basically the age in which people voted Conservative fell significantly between the 2017 election and the 2019 election. And I think as well, if you look at it in terms of who the state has acted economically to protect and who doesn't need the state's economic protection, that this cuts across the parties because an important part of Labour's electoral coalition is middle class public sector, which many people's salaries are still being paid by the organisations for which they're employed by. If you look in the Conservative electoral coalition it includes people with small businesses who have i think some you know justifiable reasons to think that they haven't been as well treated as others in this crisis so once you start unpacking the economic predicament that different groups in britain face i think that it doesn't actually fit very easily into the existing political coalitions tom do you want to come in yeah i was just thinking about what you were saying there and it reminds me a little bit of the brexit crisis where There was a sense that the party that moved quickest to recognise that the ground had shifted beneath Westminster's feet was the one that was going to win. And the Labour Party just found it impossible to move as quickly as the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party moved incredibly quickly, if you think about it. It flipped, even under Theresa May, to being the Brexit Party. And the same strategy that Theresa May chose and went with in 2017 was effectively the one that Boris Johnson went with in 2019. He just did it with more skill. You know, he's a better front man and he was able to break through. But they pivoted to reflect the new environment. And I remember when I 
look back over the history of the Conservative Party, they always had that ability to adapt to the new situation skillfully. And it's the sort of the secret for their survival in a way. And the Labour Party has found it harder to do that. So I guess they're facing a similar situation now where the Conservative Party has to somehow be the party that reopens the economy for smaller businesses and people who are not employed by the state, while at the same time ensuring that they protect those in their base as well, the older population who are vulnerable to this and who do have a guaranteed income in a pension. So politically, who is the more skillful politician who is able to survive in this environment? Do you think there might be a significant group of people, not just young, but probably mainly, for whom the choices it's currently being presented, which is essentially, do we carry on with this freezing of the economy in order to protect people's lives? Or do we start to go back to an opening up of that economy, possibly at the cost of some lives, but also because we believe that there are significant costs, including health costs, to carrying on like this? So it's that choice as it's presented, which is lockdown, open up. Do you think there are quite a lot of people for whom both options are intolerable? They don't want to remain stuck, trapped in their homes in this precarious situation. But having been taken out of that previous economic reality, they don't want to go back to it because it was also precarious for many people. And this could be, I mean, I say this very warily, this could be a moment for at least a new kind of radical politics to emerge, not Corbynism, not the things that we've been living through, but something fresh, new. I mean, I don't know who would articulate it, but that basically says for many people, having been removed from those economic conditions, but placed in an equally intolerable situation, there has to be something new. Or is that, am I sounding too wishful now? I wrote a piece recently looking at Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn's legacy and wondering whether they were they would be seen as the sort of Barry Goldwaters of today, the people who paved the way for a sort of radicalism that came to power in years to come. And that would be different and that would address different challenges, but there would be something there that connected the two. And I think there are those things. There are people who are saying, no, I'm not accepting the choice as it is framed. I'm willing to look at new options to balance security versus individual liberty, whether it's different types of a state, different types of activist state, a different type of surveillance state, and also some kind of new social contract. If we've had an enormous bailout that is going to be paid off for years to come, and it has landed unequally on people, so some people have benefited far more than others, then that has to be reflected politically. And perhaps that has to be reflected politically, or there will be a movement on the left to say, If we are going to have these kind of state interventions, we need a system up front that is more equal, that you pay into a system and you know that you're going to be treated equally on the other side of that. You know, so you're opening up things like contributory benefits to some extent, which has long been unacceptable, certainly on the left of the Labour Party. So, yeah, I could imagine all of these things changing rapidly. And you can see how there is a space for the left to start speaking to people far beyond the currently quite restrictive base that it has by talking about healthcare, by talking about 
access to open space, housing, some kind of social contract on economic protection. Yeah, I mean, I think that different people and different groups of people are going to react pretty differently to what the future now looks like it might well be like. So there are going to be people, as you said, David, who are going to say, well, I don't want to go back to the world as it was because it was economically so awful for me. I think there are people as well who are going to react and say, I don't want to go back to the world as it was because I've rather liked what seems like this more environmentally pleasant place with significantly better air quality, for example. I don't want to go back to that life of chasing around, going to meetings on the other side of the world, the kind of sense in which certain kinds of economic activity were constructed in this way that made it necessary for people to travel for long distances for really things that have been proven could be done by Zoom or whatever other platform. And I think that psychologically, different people, as I say, are going to have very different reactions because some people are going to want to say, I just want the world back the way that it was. I want normality again. Some people are going to want to say, I love those meetings and I love taking trips halfway around the world. I think we all know quite a few people who are itching to get back on a plane. But the bottom line is normality isn't coming back again. And neither are we all going to be able to construct some, you know, like new normal utopia. We are going to have to work out how to live in the world with, for the foreseeable future, a significant threat of disease. And that is going to require us existentially to live in a different way. It's going to require our politics to be different in terms of facing up to what are simply a set of unpalatable choices. There are no good choices available. And we're going to have to do it in the context in which economic questions are going to be very much to the fore and distributional economic questions are going to be very much to the fore because you can criticise what individual governments have chosen to do, and I think quite rightly in some cases, but there wasn't actually any way in which governments could have reacted to the economic disaster that has occurred without making decisions that would have distributional consequences. And those distributional consequences are now going to be part of the political world in which we have to inhabit. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Helen, I was thinking of you at various moments seeing Rishi Sunak or others talk about what has to be done and then... People saying, look, this has shifted the dial enormously. It's opened up the space of possibility. Here are not just politicians, but conservative politicians doing things that would have been anathema just a few weeks ago. Governments have been forced to take action in a way, having no choice. They've now opened up a much wider space of choice for both politicians and electorates to think about the future they want. And then I think of you, Helen, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think that you would also say, as well as opening up space, it greatly narrows it because we're entering a world in which we are going to be enormously constrained by the choices we've made over these few weeks, not just the commitments that we've made, but the debts that we've built up. We're still going to be living in a world of ruthless financial markets. 
this doesn't just mean politics has become more open to possibility. It's closed off possibilities too, hasn't it? I think quite probably that it has, though I think it's also too soon to tell. I think that the truth is that nobody has got any idea what the medium-term consequences of the economic choices that have been made have been. I think you can say the Fed in particular has reacted in a way as if to say, okay, we will just take enormous amounts of risk. You know, the best example of that is the Fed is effectively bailed out those investors who've been holding junk bombs by buying them up as part of its asset purchase program. So in one sense, the Fed is like, okay, there is no risk that we cannot contemplate sort of taking an approach on the premise that there aren't limits to what the American central bank can do. Now, I find it hard to believe that there actually aren't limits to what the American central bank can do. And indeed, I think you could say in the early part of the financial aspect of the crisis, we saw the clear limits of what the Federal Reserve could do because the reaction of the markets to its early actions was a complete lack of confidence in what it was doing and effectively a bursting of the share bubble that now seems to be on its way back again. In terms of what we're going to do about the debt, I think that is in some sense the fundamental you know, economic unknown. It's not difficult to see how when we get to a certain point there will be significant political pressure to raise taxes and to try to put, if you like, some sounder economic footing under the, all this debt that's been accumulated. On the other hand, I find it quite difficult to believe that, particularly given what happened after 2008, that there isn't going to be a significant political backlash against anything that looks like a return to what got called austerity. I think that's an oversimplification of what happened after 2008, but that doesn't really matter. The perception was that the banks were bailed out and then the consequences of that was imposed on the most vulnerable in society via fiscal austerity. And I just don't think we're in a a political position in Western democracies where that can happen again. Having said that, it's not easy to see how we're going to move in the politics in which we now are to a way of dealing with that debt, which effectively either deals with it by inflation or deals with it basically by having more taxes on the richest in society. So the fundamental problem remains the economic unknown. And I think it is quite interesting is the best gauge we have about what the people who have the most immediate incentive to think about what the long term might look like, i.e. investors, they are looking at the world and saying, well, I don't think that in 10 years time, 30 years time, there's going to be a lot of inflation around because otherwise we will be seeing these 10 year bonds, 30 year bonds spiking. And that isn't what happened now. That doesn't mean that they're right. So if inflation isn't going to be the answer to all this debt, then we are going to see pressures on taxes. And the question will become who is going to have their taxes raised in order to pay for this. And then we're back to these question of distribution and the politics of distribution. So, Tom, if you go back to your Goldwater analogy, so say Corbyn and Sanders are the Barry Goldwaters and they were paving the way for someone to come along, maybe Keir Starmer is that person, and they come along because the world has changed and what seemed impossible now becomes possible because governments have started to do the things that the Corbyns and the Sanders were advocating. But governments, by doing those things, have built up enormous obligations to the future. I mean, they've already, as it were, taken the decisive step and then Starmer, whoever it is, comes in. 
do you think that they come in under circumstances in which actually they're more constrained? I mean, they are essentially inheriting Tory versions of these policies, and they can't just start again. Yeah, I wrote recently about Boris Johnson having a blank sheet, but actually, you know, in many ways, it's kind of the opposite of a blank sheet. It's a, where can he go? Where can he turn? What can he write on that sheet? The position that Britain finds itself is still pretty daunting. We have to negotiate an exit from the European Union and a future relationship by the end of this year, or we have to extend it. We're going to have something like 100% debt to GDP ratio. We're going to have a pretty big deficit again. I don't know how long that will last. We're perhaps going to have a longer recession than the OBR forecast yesterday, which it talked about it bouncing back very, very quickly. People I was speaking to yesterday said that their perception of how people behave means that that is actually unlikely. You know, will people go to cinemas and restaurants in the same way that they did before for a long time or get on trains and tubes and all of those things? So we're in for a long haul. So that's not just a problem for Boris Johnson. If he is unable to come up with a story of how Britain is going to prosper facing all these challenges, how are we going to build an economy to make some money, then he's got a problem if he can show himself that he's nothing more than a sort of feel-good factor. And then Keir Starmer's got a problem if he comes in. What can he do? It's a little bit like the sort of, you know, again, a sort of post-war government. You can do lots of things, but you are constrained. You know, that government had a lot of problems trying to balance the books and austerity and all of those things, as we call it today. I think this is a problem for all of us that we're not yet facing because We have a more immediate existential crisis facing us right now, but it doesn't mean it's not just as daunting. And we are in that phase of this where, I mean, Rishi Sunak was saying yesterday, when pushed on this question, the answer that they give is, well, we just need to boost productivity. Productivity will get us out of it, which A, they've been saying forever, and B, it doesn't feel at the moment like a super productive world. I mean, the idea that Zoom or whatever it is, is the magic bullet that's going to solve the productivity problem seems to me to be genuinely wishful. Anyway, I want to ask about something else before we go, which is a different way in which politics could change. So we've also been through a phase just for a few weeks now in which all of the key decisions have been taken by a mixture of executive authority, the government, the prime minister, and then when he was out of action, a small group of ministers in conjunction with experts, with their expert advisors, and again, for better or for worse. Some of those judgments may turn out to have been deeply flawed, but it's been accepted that at this phase of the crisis, decision-making passes to executive-slash-expert authority. That's to shut us down. To open us up, it feels different. Keir Starmer is pressing for much more parliamentary scrutiny, the opportunity for parliamentary debate and dissent, for representation of different points of view, and that seems to me entirely reasonable. The question of how we open up is one where democratic input does seem really important for all the reasons we've talked about. The consequences are going to be so different for different people. The timing really matters for different groups. I mean, if we all shut down at the same time, that's one thing. But if we open up at different times, that's another. So at the moment, our democracy is really reduced to its bare bones. It's barely democratic. But could it possibly become a lot more democratic than it was before? I don't really see that, to be honest, because I don't think that the difference between shutting down and opening up is politically different from each other. Essentially, what we've seen during this crisis is 
authoritative decision making by executives advised by experts. And the important thing in terms of the consequences of that decision making is that those decisions have been largely accepted by citizens. So the risk is that if you have a great deal of political contest about the decision making about coming out of the crisis, you will have significantly less acceptance of the decisions that still have got to be made in the end by a single site of authority, however many people that they consult with. So unless we think that the risk is so diminished that we can actually have people doing more to make their own minds up about how to deal with the situation, the fundamental political problem that in the moment of crisis that you need authority and you need authoritative decision-making hasn't gone away. It's perfectly possible to have a great deal more parliamentary scrutiny, parliamentary engagement with the executive decision-making than we had earlier on. But I don't think that in itself opens up the decision-making. It seems to me that crucial point in terms of opening it up is actually what goes on within the executive itself and not having too small a group of ministers, so involving the entirety of the cabinet, perhaps, because what you want is to make sure that all the different considerations, all the different interests at stake are considered in the decision making so that everything from not just health and the economy, but education, transport, you want all the different possibilities in terms of our practical collective life to come into play in the decision making. It seems to me that broadening out the executive decision making is more consequential to this than opening up the democratic decision making. Although I have to say, just speaking for myself, one moment when I had a wobble about my confidence in the decision making powers of the government was that photo of the Zoom cabinet meeting where you saw all 27 of them or whatever it was sitting in there. Well, Jacob Rees-Mogg in his three-piece suit sitting in front of some kind of 18th century library and others of them on their beds and so on. I felt more comfortable with fewer at that point. But that might be me. It's not so much a question of the fewer. It's just a question, I think, of making sure that all the different considerations of the ways in which we live are brought to bear upon the decision. Because I think if we just turn it into a health versus the economy trade-off, that that actually quite radically oversimplifies the problem. Tom, do you think Keir Starmer's got a strong case at the moment for much greater parliamentary involvement in this? Yeah, I think he has a strong case, and I think he's actually prosecuting it pretty well. It's smart politics for him, as much as anything else, to be out of the traps early and seem to be on the front foot pushing for something that will inevitably come to pass. And we saw that, to some extent, or the failures of that in the closing down of the economy, when people in Westminster and both parties were agreeing that we should follow the advice of the experts and the scientists and all of that. And actually, there would have been political capital to be made in pushing for a quicker lockdown. So I think he's learning the lessons of that. Um, On the question of whether the decision should be opened up in general, I wonder if it's going to go the opposite way. And it's, it's going to be closed, not just to the cabinet, but it's going to be closed even further. It's, you know, we're going to have the prime minister out of checkers in the next week or two back in charge. And there has been a feeling of drift right at the top as if decisions aren't made. I think it comes down to this reality of British politics right now. Boris Johnson is extraordinarily powerful and dominant over Parliament and the Conservative Party. 
And that is going to be one of the perhaps the most important factor in British politics and in this crisis over the next few years, in that he is in charge. You know, it feels to me that he is far more dominant even than Tony Blair, who had to share power with Gordon Brown to some extent. He runs a kind of, somebody explained it to me uh, as a kind of court in number 10, where he likes to have smart people, different people, a lot of non-Tories actually around him in number 10. He likes ideas to be bounced around, but ultimately they are kind of equals under him and he is in charge and they are more powerful than the cabinet. So I wonder whether we're actually going to see a much further condensing of power into his hands and some of his advisors who are coming back now, like Cummings, for whom this crisis is likely to convince him, I imagine, that his view of the British state not being resilient enough to cope with crisis, that is likely to be reinforced by this health crisis. So I think we will Uh, it's more than likely we'll have a sort of foot to the floor, Boris Johnson in charge when he's back. Just to finish, do you feel that what seemed to be a feature of British politics over the last three plus years, the Brexit years, which was that lots of different kinds of democracy were at work at the same time. The referendum was a form of direct democracy. It produced for a long time stalemate in Parliament and then attempts to find ways outside of Parliament to resolve it, whether it's arguments for a citizens' assembly, whether it's more direct street forms of politics, forms of actual protest, that then morphed into the brief period of Extinction Rebellion. It just There was that sense that democratic politics was opening up outside of parliamentary representation. And then one thing happened to shut it down, which was the general election, an old-fashioned general election producing an old-fashioned majority. And then, as you say, under the British system, an extraordinarily powerful prime minister And then that moves straight into this, which seems to have left Brexit a bit behind, where that prime minister's power has possibly been enhanced, not least because he is currently very popular. Were the previous three years just an illusion? Is there no possibility through this crisis? This is a much bigger crisis than Brexit. And Brexit, for a moment, seemed to break the stranglehold of conventional parliamentary representation on our understanding of democracy. Could this one not do something similar? Or have we just decisively shut the door on that and we're back to what we've always known which is in a crisis the prime minister decides i think the crucial question in a way is going to be what happens to the the labor party because it was in part the the labor party's travise through the brexit years that at least contributed to the political situation that we were in with our democratic politics in order for parliamentary politics to work in anything like the way in which it's supposed to, then there has to be an opposition party that enough people believe in, not least the incumbent government, has got a real possibility of replacing that government at the next general election. And it needs to be able to articulate the interests, in some sense, of those who are either most harmed or least benefit from the choices that the incumbent government is making. So if we're going back into a period under Starmer's leadership where the Labour Party is a plausible alternative government and can hold together a reasonably broad electoral coalition, then less might change in Britain than will, I think, in some other areas. But I think that 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 is far from a given, and that isn't really a comment on Keir Starmer as a leader, but so much as the the complexity of the political situation 
that Labour still faces. So if we still have a vacuum on the opposition side, then I, I think that it would be reasonable to expect, particularly given the economic distributional conflicts that are likely to ensue, that we still will have significant numbers of people looking for outlets for political action in democratic politics outside parliamentary politics. And Tom, you did write recently that Keir Starmer's election was part of a wider picture of certain forms of established norms, ways of doing politics in this country, what we might call the established version of politics reasserting itself. Do you still feel that? I do. I think the interesting thing about Keir Starmer is he's actually more left-wing and closer to the sort of Corbynite wing of the Labour Party than perhaps you assume. He's a sort of more Ed Miliband than David Miliband. Um, somebody, there was a recent profile in the New Statesman, which was excellent, and it talked about him being of the sort of extra parliamentary left. But I think his power comes from the fact that he had become very much the parliamentary left. You know, he is using parliament to enhance his power. He is also boosted very much by the vote among Labour members and the unions and the local Labour parties. So I think his base is extremely strong, but he is a parliamentary figure now very much of the establishment. The thing that struck me as well in this crisis is the one thing that is extra parliamentary that is of real significance and power are actually the devolved assemblies, you know, the role of Nicola Sturgeon in this, and to a lesser extent in Wales and Northern Ireland. But you're seeing different versions of this healthcare crisis in each of the four areas of the UK. And from what I understand, Northern Ireland has similar results to the Republic of Ireland, even though it's under UK law. So there are different ways that we're experiencing this. But I think Sturgeon's role is particularly significant. And I'm not sure this was the case beforehand, but it just feels ever more so every time there is something significant that happens. I mean, she is effectively a prime minister. It feels more and more like that. And she works in tandem with whoever is in charge in London. I'm going to give myself the last word for once, just because when we were talking about American politics last week, I made the mistake of saying, well, at least for now, this isn't politics being decided by the Supreme Court. And I was told, oh, yes, it is. And oh, yes, it will be. And it is also true in that intense Brexit moment of just six months ago, one of the extra parliamentary forms of politics that suddenly was right in the foreground was the Supreme Court. And we've sort of forgotten that. But I have a feeling I want to say this in case <laughs> I, I miss it out again. I have a feeling that that hasn't gone away either, not least in relation to the relative authority of the devolved governments, because that question hasn't gone away too. And we're going to be talking about that before very long. There will be links to Tom's excellent writing in The Atlantic about British politics in our show notes and also on Twitter at tppodcast underscore over the next week, we're going to be catching up with Adam Tooze to hear his latest thoughts about this ever-developing crisis. And in our regular slot next week, we're talking to Diane Coyle about some of the wider economic effects of the lockdown, but also what it means for our well-being. And soon, we're going to tell you about a new series, Talking Politics, History of Ideas. Do please join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.